2 Kings, chapter 22, and then the first three verses of chapter 23. So 2 Kings, 22. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. His mother's name was Jedida, daughter of Adiah, and she was from Bozkath. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent the secretary, Shaphan, son of Azaliah, and son of Meshulam, to the temple of the Lord. And he said, go up to Hilkiah the high priest and make him get ready the money that has been brought into the temple of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have collected from the people. Make them entrust it to the men appointed to supervise the work on the temple, and make these men pay the workers who repair the temple of the Lord, the carpenters, the builders, and the masons. And also make them purchase timber and dressed stone to repair the temple but they need not account for the money entrusted to them because they are acting faithfully. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. And he gave it to Shaphan, who read it. Then Shaphan, the secretary, went to the king and reported him, Your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and then entrusted it to the workers and supervisors of the temple. Then Shaphan the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Achim son of Shaphan, Akbor son of Micaiah, Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. Hilkiah the priest, Achim, Akbor, Shapham, and Isaiah went to speak to the prophetess Huldah, who was the wife of Shalom, son of Tikvah, and son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. And she lived in Jerusalem in the second district. She said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Tell the man who sent you to me, this is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on this place and its people according to everything written in the book of the king of Judah, or the king, the book the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and provoked me to anger by all the idols their hands have made, my anger will burn against this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what the Lord, the Lord God of Israel says concerning the words you have heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people, 
that they would be accursed and laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore I will gather you to your fathers and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring to this place. And so they took her answer back to the king. And then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord in the, with the men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commands, regulations, and decrees with all his heart and all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This evening it's my last Christmas present to unwrap. When the preaching rotor came out in August, I saw that my name was on the very last Sunday evening of the year, with no passage allotted. As a novice preacher, I waited patiently for some months to see what scripture I would be given. But eventually I was told that I had a free choice. So the responsibility for this evening's, evening's offering is entirely mine. My line manager is enjoying a very well-deserved holiday, so he hasn't been here to check any of it. So when you want to send the emails on Monday or whichever day it is, please send them to me. And on that note, I do have some sermon evaluation forms, and if anyone feels moved to fill one in, I'd be very grateful, because as you've heard, I'm training to be a licensed lay minister, and I have to present evaluations as part of my portfolio. So whatever criticisms you have, please feel free to send them straight to me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that all scripture is inspired and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. Open your word to each one of us tonight to meet us where we are, to give us ears to hear you speak to us, and soften our hearts to respond. Well, it's that time of year when, in the words of our Prime Minister, we often take time to pause and reflect on what's important. We review the past year, take stock, and make resolutions for the coming year. 2012 has been a memorable year for many. Nationally, with the Queen's Diamond Jubilee, the hosting in London of the Olympics and the Paralympics. And we move then to the church here in England, with the appointment of a new Archbishop of Canterbury, have a continuing debate and controversy about women bishops and same-sex marriage. 
In our local church, we've launched the Jubilee Building Project. But also for ourselves, it's a time when we're reminded daily of the reality of living in a broken world. And for ourselves, the rhythm and pattern of our lives continues to unfold. What I'm hoping to do this evening is to use our reading and Josiah's story as a pattern to consider the seasonal themes of review, repentance, and renewal as we think about our resolutions for the coming year. As it's a story set in a particular time and a place, I'll draw out some of the application as we go along rather than saving it for the end. So for those who come to the six o'clock service regularly, you'll know that this term in our sermon series, we've looked at several kings. We started with Saul, we then followed by David, and we had more in-depth studies of Solomon. During Advent and Christmas, the series anticipated and welcomed Jesus as the true king. And I hope you don't feel that we're going backwards in time, looking at the life of another Old Testament king. Because just as Andrew pointed out that Solomon's failure was characterized by the timeless dynamics of the world, money, sex, and power, so we might look to and learn from the life of a good king, whose obituary reads later on in chapter 23, neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with the law of Moses. A legacy indeed. Now as we're at that Christmas time of year, we all like a heartwarming story with an R factor. So I'll just work through an updated version, source and synopsis of um, the story. We have Josiah, who's a good man, comes to the throne when he's only eight. 18 years into his reign, he's busily engaged doing a kingly thing, a building project to repair the temple. The people have been fundraising for a while and their free will contributions are to be collected and given to the workers and supervisors who are so trustworthy that they're not required to give any account of how the money is spent. Into this cosy scene enters Hilkiah, the high priest, who randomly finds a book in the temple, which he then gives to the secretary to read. The secretary, reporting back to Josiah on the progress of the building works, takes the opportunity to read this recent discovery to Josiah. This engenders a frantic reaction in the king, who tears his clothes and orders his inner circle to find out what it means, as it clearly doesn't sound like good news. The courtiers, including the high priest, scurry around to try to find someone, anyone, who might be able to let them know what God's saying to them. Unfortunately, it does turn out to be bad news for the people, although Josiah himself won't be about when the disaster arrives. Josiah responds by gathering everyone together at the temple where he reads from the newly discovered book and renews his commitment to the covenant. And then the people pledge themselves to do the same, 
Later on in chapter 23, they celebrate the covenant meal, which has also apparently not been celebrated properly according to the newly rediscovered Book of the Law. So there we have it. Is it all going to be all right? Is God going to let them off? Will they all live happily ever after? Well, let's take a bit of a closer look at what does happen. You see, what we've been doing this last term is we've been looking at the story of God's covenant people. The people living in God's place, living under God's rule. And we're looking at that part of God's unfolding story where his people have been redeemed from Egypt. They're ruled by God through his gift of the law. And they've arrived after quite a lot of drama in God's place. And you'll recall, those who were attentively listening to the sermon series, that God had anticipated that his people would want to keep up with their neighbours and have a visible king. And in fact, God had even set set out the job specification in Deuteronomy 17. And I'll just remind you what that says. The king. When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He mustn't take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He mustn't accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, taken from that of the priests who are Levites. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his brothers, and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. So our sermon series last term started with the people's choice of Saul as king. With David, the people eventually accepted the man after God's own heart, God's choice. This new situation with a king brought a new promise from God to David which required a revision of the covenant. The role of the king was to be a mediator between the people and God. So we left the story of kings at 1 Kings 12 with the events after Solomon's death in 930 BC. And we were told that Solomon's heart had turned away from God. God's judgment came and he judged in a way that brought division a divided kingdom into two parts. 
The northern kingdom of Israel lay to be, sent, to be centered on Samaria and the southern kingdom of Judah. That was the smaller kingdom. It had Jerusalem, the temple. The history of the northern kingdom was that it was ruled by a line of kings starting with Jeroboam. And it had institutionalized idolatry at its heart. I think another of the things that we learned last term was idolatry and what idolatry means for us today. So I don't think it really came as a great surprise when the Assyrians came to execute God's judgment on the nation in 722 BC and the northern kingdom disappeared completely. But what of the southern kingdom? God has promised David that his house and kingdom shall endure forever. So we come to Josiah, a descendant of David. He becomes king in Judah in 640 BC when he's eight. And this is some 80 years after the fall of the Northern Kingdom. And so far as the kings in Judah were concerned, Rehoboam was the first one, Solomon's son, and they'd been a bit of a mixed bag. The book of Kings talks about those who did evil in the sight of the Lord and those who did right in the eyes of the Lord. Josiah comes to the throne, although both his father and his grandfather had done evil. But Josiah, it seems, is a naturally good man. So far as we can tell, he doesn't appear to have a problem with horses, women, or money, as some of his forebears did. He appears to be steady in every way, a pillar, involved in a worthy project to repair and restore the temple which by now is about 300 years old and doubtless showing lots of signs of its constant and everyday use. In chapter 22, verses 1 to 7 of our reading, you could really be forgiven for thinking that things were going quite well. We have a godly king and a godly rule. So perhaps we're meant to be brought up short in shock and surprise when Josiah is confronted with the word of God in the form of the words in the book of the law. I'm not going to go into any academic debate about exactly what this book of the law might have been, but I'll assume that at the very least it contained the book of Deuteronomy with the contents as we know them, however much they might have been subsequently edited. But what we are told is that the word was effective in convicting Josiah that all in the garden was not rosy. So let's have a think and look about what might be wrong. Josiah is clear in verse 13 that God is angry because of disobedience to the law and that this has continued on a generational basis. He is a recipient of inherited sin Although it does seem that he might also have been convicted that as king, he was supposed to be reading the law every day so that he could revere it and follow it carefully. Josiah's role is supposed to be the mediator of the covenant. However, you'll see that he, as the mediator of the covenant, is unable to inquire of the Lord himself, but has to depend upon sending his officials, including the high priest, to find someone who can. And it does seem that the only person who can interpret for him is a woman. 
I'm delighted the passage affirms God's place for women in his unfolding purposes, whatever that particular role might be at any given time in history. But I think we really do need to be looking more closely at what's going on in Jerusalem, where a relatively insignificant woman appears to be the only person who knows God's thoughts, ways, and plans. Where are the priests? Well, if you look in chapter 23, verse 2, they're certainly there. And the prophets are there too. And you might think that they would have been a more obvious choice of a person to inquire of the Lord than a woman who's married to the wardrobe keeper. So what's happened? Well, one of the shortcomings of the revised Davidic covenant is that it had to depend on the character of the king. And one of the problems of power, as exemplified by Solomon, is that it's easy for the powerful to become blind and deaf. So God's response to that was to raise up prophets as a check and a balance to challenge the king. Never a very popular thing to do and frequently quite dangerous for the prophets. And you'll see from the passage that Huldah herself didn't tell the king face to face but sent her message back through the courtiers. A wise move, you might think. So how do the kings tend to neutralize the unpopular messages of the true prophet? Well, what they had a tendency to do was to listen to the false prophets, the yes-men, those who distinguished themselves by saying just what the king wanted to hear. And obviously, it's always easier to go with the majority view when you've got lots of uh, prophets saying one thing and just one irritating prophet who comes along saying something different. It's easy to see why that one would be uh, thrown out, as I'm afraid the prophets had a habit of doing. But having said that, it does appear to be God's way of speaking at this time of progressive revelation. With our benefit of hindsight looking back, we know that the true prophets who were active and contemporaneous with Josiah were Zephaniah and Jeremiah. Actually, they give a rather different analysis of the state of the nation. They paint a picture of a prosperous people whose wealth made them proud and complacent. Jerusalem is described as a city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. And I'm quoting, her prophets are arrogant, they are treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. Jeremiah castigates the complacency of the people, their false religion, the ritual of the temple worship and sacrifice, hypocrisy, a refusal to be corrected, and their failure to listen to God despite his persistent calling to them. Their failing involves what I might describe as the sin of presumption. They believe themselves to be God's chosen people who are only going to receive blessing. Their faith is in the temple. They're content with the ritual of religion, beautiful though that may be. 
They don't believe that God will bring judgment. And perhaps their complacency has come about because Josiah's great-grandfather was saved miraculously in times gone by. However, God does judge. As it said, that's his job. Judgment is inevitable, even if delayed. Within a generation of the building project, the temple was in ruins. So given that's our context, let's look and see if we can apply the pattern of Josiah's encounter with God. Josiah is clearly brought to a time of review when the word cuts him to the quick. A lot of my Christmas presents were books, and I'd like to share one of them with you. It's been helpful to me over the past few days in terms of a time of review and self-examination. It's written by an American pastor, and it's called Crazy Love. He says, a relationship with God simply cannot grow when money, sins, favorite sports teams, addictions, or commitments are piled on top of it. A lot of things are good in themselves, but all of it together keeps us from living healthy, fruitful lives for God. So the question I'd like us to be asking ourselves is, has our relationship with God actually changed the way we live? Is there evidence of God's kingdom in our lives? Are we drifting away, spending too much time, energy, money, and thought on the things of this world? He's got a bit of a quiz in the book, which might be topical for this time of year. And I think that this can only really be considered by those of us who consider that we're part of God's family. He gives us several descriptions of lukewarm people and challenges us to examine ourselves in the light of the scripture that he quotes. And I want you to note that this is a process of self-examination. It's not to point the finger at anyone other than ourselves. If I give you a couple of quotes, just so that you'll get a flavor of it. And you'll see where he's coming from in all of this. Lukewarm people say they love Jesus, and he is indeed a part of their lives, but only a part. They give him a second, a section of their time, their money and their thoughts, but he isn't allowed to control their lives. And then he quotes the passage from Luke, where among other things Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. It's quite long, but I'll just pick a couple of others, and one of them I think is perhaps particularly helpful to us. It says, lukewarm people love others, 
but do not seek to love others as much as they love themselves. Their love of others is typically focused on those who love them in return, like family, friends, and other people they know and connect with. There is little love left for those who cannot love them back, much less for those who intentionally slight them, whose kids are better athletes than theirs, or with whom conversations are awkward or uncomfortable. Their love is highly conditional and very selective, and generally comes with strings attached. So again, we have a, a challenge from Scripture, which everyone will probably be with, familiar with, from Matthew. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? It is quite challenging to us as the people of God. And we have this one here. I know it's in America, but I'm sure it travels over the Atlantic. Lukewarm people give money to charity and to the church, as long as it doesn't impinge on their standard of living. If they have a little extra and it's easy and safe to give, they do so. After all, God loves a cheerful giver, right? So that's uh, the challenge then comes from you know, many scriptures. But this one is you know, a less common one, where King David says, no, I insist on paying the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. And the book goes on to talk about the leftovers that we have a habit of giving. So all of this challenge is by God's grace, after prayer and conviction by the Holy Spirit, intended to bring us to repentance. And that was the word that Michael pointed out to us a couple of weeks ago, was the first recorded word of Jesus. I don't think repentance is at all a natural part of human nature. In my day-to-day -day job as a divorce lawyer, I can echo the words from the song, sorry seems to be the hardest word. I'm afraid human nature, when confronted with shortcomings, is more likely to be defensive, to treat it lightly, to make excuses, to blame somebody else, to minimize the harm done, to suppress, to rationalize. Seems that some people never even apologize, let alone repent. Even when the word sorry features, one complaint I often hear is that apologies are phrased along the lines of, I'm sorry you are upset, or I have upset you. It's really difficult to know how to respond when there seems to be a total lack of awareness of what's been done wrong. I once had a work colleague who had a very active account with Interflora, flowers instead of apology. And forgiveness is usually limited, not by the amount of sin, but by the willingness to repent which is why repentance itself is a gift from God, as it needs God's grace to open eyes and ears to wrongdoing. Repentance means agreeing with God's serious view of our rebellion and lawlessness. It's often both humbling and humiliating, not a place we proud creatures naturally want to go. 
It means accepting that we're on the wrong road and need to turn back. And as we all know, it's often easier to keep on going in the wrong direction than to turn back to the point where we went wrong. C.S. Lewis describes repentance. It means unlearning all the self-conceit and self-will we've been training ourselves into for thousands of years. It means killing part of yourself, undergoing a kind of death. In Josiah, we have a good pattern, an example of an essentially good man who repents. He's convicted of the seriousness of sin from God's point of view. He's commended for having a responsive heart, for humbling himself, tearing his clothes being the external expression of what's happening inside his inner being. He weeps. He takes dramatic steps to purge the kingdom of the visible manifestations of idolatry, more of which you can read about if you're interested in the rest of chapter 23. And having experienced conviction of sin and repentance, he takes leadership responsibility and wants to preach the word to all the people in the way that he knew, i.e. a covenant renewal ceremony, fitting for a jubilee. So let's think about renewal. Josiah is faithful to his role as a king and the people are recorded in the last bit that Ian read to us as responding by pledging themselves to the covenant. However, the problem is that Josiah can't fulfill it on their behalf. He can't repent for the people individually. If they're stiff-necked, rebellious and idolatrous who say one thing but do another, then judgment must come. Going back to Jeremiah's take on things, he's convinced that the existing covenant is so totally broken that it can only be replaced by a new covenant. The essence of that new covenant is that all the people will know the Lord from the least to the greatest. We're today the inheritors of that new covenant with all the benefits we have from Emmanuel, Jesus with us, Jesus in us, the fulfiller of the covenant, who by giving himself for us, enables us to obey and know God. So the basis for our judgment, I'll read from two Thessalonians. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Many of you might want to come to the watch night service tomorrow evening to renew your own covenant of love and service for Jesus. So let's finish with Josiah. On the face of it, he seems to be a good man who does the right thing and he receives a high commendation from God. We all start as Old Testament characters, having been born in Adam but we need to move on in the way provided by Jesus through the cross to be the people of the new covenant. For all his goodness, Josiah does not have intimacy with God. In fact, he gets it all horribly wrong at the end. Josiah doesn't recognize God speaking to him when God chooses to speak through someone unexpected. A lesson for us all, perhaps, but I think that's a story for another day. So let's conclude by praying in the words of a prayer from Martin Lloyd-Jones.
Lord, again we thank thee for thy word. We are prone to wander, detracting and subtracting from it, making things easy for ourselves. But we bless thee for this word, teaching and instructing us, warning and safeguarding us from the subtle assaults of the enemy who appears as an angel of light to twist and pervert even thy holy word. Lord, we thank thee for the faith we have. May thou grant more clear assurance so we may give diligence to making our election sure. You have provided the way for this. Grant that your children may know, as never before, the Spirit bearing witness with them that they are indeed the children of God. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.